0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman.
1: This is Democracy Works. Chris, today's, today our guest is uh, Stella Rouse. Stella is a, a, an associate professor in the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland and the director of the Center for American Politics and Citizenship. And we're talking with her today, right before the election, uh, because she has a fascinating new book out entitled The Politics of Millennials, political beliefs and policy preferences of America's most diverse generation.
0: Yeah, so, so uh, you know, as our listeners know, we have this, uh, these mood of the nation poll questions. And, and the last one is, what gives you hope? And how many times have we heard somebody say and, re- and, and reflect back to us that their hope is in young people? And yeah, we I, could go
1: back and check that, but you're right. We it, hear that it, all it's, the time. It is far more than
0: anything else. Yeah. And and especially since uh, the Parkland kids. Absolutely, have become right. So mm-hmm. visible. So, you know, that fact coupled with the midterms coming up makes this an extremely uh, salient and timely topic for us.
1: Sure, there's been a lot of discussion about whether uh, younger voters who, you know, depending on who you're talking to, can mean uh, millennials, who are generally those who came of age in the late 1990s, -hmm. or uh, current college students who we usually think of as Generation Z.
0: I don't know what comes next, but but maybe nothing. Maybe that's the point. AA, I don't know. A prime, I don't know. That's for others to worry about. But
1: lots of talk about uh, will we see uh, this generation who has an historically low voting record, especially in midterm elections, And who really didn't turn out for Hillary Clinton in mm-hmm. the numbers that they were, were needed, mm-hmm. f- for Hillary Clinton anyway, uh, are they going to vote?
0: Yeah, it's a very uh, unusual and distinctive um, generation. It's also worth— uh pointing out that it's the largest right it's the largest generational cohort in american politics right now or it will be any day now right
1: right and and so i really welcome this work by stella because uh th- this is, it, it, it's important to understand sure for, from the perspective of handicapping an election are they going to vote mm-hmm. uh but also what are they going to be about right what, what what do they want what, what are their demands going to be what are they going to bring into the political system to what extent are the parties and uh, politicians going to respond to, to what it is that they are, to what it is that they're all about.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would say is it's not, it's not just unclear what they're going to bring to politics. It's also not clear that they're going to bring anything to politics. I mean, at least in terms of elections and candidates. Now, you see this changing. But, again, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, 2014 was, what, 19% percent
1: Voter registration does seem to be up, mm-hmm. but this generation and, and, and the one behind them mm-hmm. have—who uh, haven't really had the opportunity to vote yet—have uh, ha- an awful voting record. And, um, you know, you could talk to a lot of experts in voting behavior. Uh, talk to Eric Plutzer, who directs our Mood of the Nation poll, and he'll say registering them is one thing. Right. But getting to the I polls is the an entirely thing. different matter. And the fact is voting is a habit.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And
1: they don't have it yet, right? And until you can get them in the voting booth and get them in the habit of voting, they are always going to be a big question about whether they turn out to vote. And it's very
0: easy to say, "Yeah, I'm going to vote," and then not. <laughs>
1: right? So this is this is a big question. And I, you know, I commend Stella for digging digging into this and other other questions about what they're like.
0: Yeah, it's really it's it's a uh, um, again salient, timely, and and could really end up uh, changing the face of American politics. So.
1: On that note, I think we should probably go to Jenna. I agree. And uh, her interview with Stella Rouse.
3: This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Stella Rouse. Stella, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. So uh, we are going to talk all about millennials. Uh, I myself am a millennial, so I was very curious to, to read your book and kind of see part of myself reflected back in it. Um, before we dive too deep into to any um, specific characteristics, characteristics of this group, uh, can you tell us how you define a, a millennial and uh, what made you interested in
2: studying this group? Sure. So technically, the, the, defi- the working definition for millennials, and I say working because there's always some uh, sort of controversy about when generations end. Um, but, but generally, the accepted time frame for the millennial generation is those born from the early 1980s to the late 1990s. Um, some people like to say that we include those born in, all the way up to 2000 as part of, of millennials, but, but our, our data in our book really treats them as those born in the early 80s to the uh, late 1990s. Um, less sort of technical, um, what I like to say is that millennials are those that experience part or most of their formative, formative years around the turn of the century.
3: Great. Yeah. And, and can you um, dive a little bit deeper into that uh, millennial identity? What are some of those those characteristics of this generation?
2: Sure. So we start the book by sort of presenting what we call um, you know, the theory of the millennial generation identity, which we use as the basis of Sort of uh, of the lens through which we view uh, how millennials uh, you know what what millennial what their attitudes are, what this generation's attitudes are toward politics, certain political issues, and then how they engage with politics. Um, And what I would say sort of briefly about the millennial generation identity is that it's composed of a a number of factors that sort of define the generation. And in particular, we point out their diversity. They're the most diverse generation in American history. They've grown up among different racial and ethnic groups much more so than any other generation. So uh, diversity really is a defining characteristic of millennials. Um, Some of the others that we discuss in the book are that millennials are the first digital natives. They're the first generation in American history to not know what it's like not to have a cell phone or have the Internet right at their fingertips. And this not only helps them communicate, you know, in general, but also, uh, you know, influences how they engage with politics. Right. Their ability to be able to, you know, basically instantaneously communicate with people around the world and be connected to, to people around the world is an important sort of defining characteristic uh, uh, of that generation. Um, and then the effect that 9-11, September 11, 2001, had on them in terms of their outlook of the world, um, their view of how we deal with, with terrorism and threats to the United States uh, is another uh, defining characteristic of the generation. And so those are the three that I would I could go into more detail about some of the other ones that we find, but those are kind of the generally the three that we discuss in detail in the book and that I think – um, informs uh, to a great deal their, their political attitudes.
3: Yeah. And um, how do millennials see themselves as as citizens? I know in the book you you mentioned kind of the, the difference between engaged citizenship and duty-based uh, citizenship. What what does that look like?
2: Right. So um, we're not the first to, to, to come up. In fact, we didn't coin those terms. I, I give all the credit to Russell Dalton, who has written about this in the past. But we sort of expand on this because we believe that he's on the right track in terms of um, – how he defines how millennials sort of um, are civically engaged. And and what we find in our research and in our surveys is that millennials are much more engaged in non-traditional forms of participation, those that are not duty-based, like voting, um, uh, like working on a campaign, um, like donating money, right? They're, they're not particularly involved in those types of, of civic engagement activities. Um, and so oftentimes people look at that and say, well, you know, millennials are apathetic toward politics. They're, they don't want to be involved in politics, but that's because they're engaged in these um, sort of civic types of, of engagement or newer types of engagement, which revolve around, um, you know, rallies, protests, um, uh, uh, you know, being on the internet and engaging through politics in that way, uh, being engaged more at the local level than in national politics, and and that's really from our focus group group interviews and our surveys that we find millennials are more engaged. Now, the million dollar question that I'm asked all the time is, how do we take that and translate it into voting? And if I had a straightforward answer for that, I probably would be uh, have a much more Benjamins in my pocket. Right. Um, everybody's sort of looking, looking for that answer. And and I don't have a straight answer to that. I think it's it's a, a sort of a, a jigsaw puzzle where we look at different pieces to try and put together to to get millennials more um more out there to vote. Some of them involve obviously breaking down barriers to voting, particularly for college students. Um, But a lot of it also involves just getting them in the habit of voting and making that part of sort of their civic portfolio, which it hasn't been in the past. And I think part of the solution is being able to reach out as older adults and say, okay, we value the ways that you engage civically. Now let's try and translate that into voting rather than sort of um, trying to shame them into voting. Or saying that the way they participate is not influential or is not important enough um, as voting, and so I don't think those methods work. It has to be some combination of, of really reaching out and meeting them halfway.
3: Right, and do you sense any forward momentum on the part of millennials to kind of re remake the system, or as they kind of become older and have more political capital to kind of um, you know create the the political system that will match their, their preferred types of engagement?
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of positive signs showing in that direction. We're seeing even just this year, a lot of, uh, millennials running for office, right? They're getting to the age where they can run for office and they're taking advantage of that. Particularly we're seeing, um, you know, minority millennials, right? Black women and minorities like, uh, uh, like o- Ocasio-Cortez in, in, in um, New York. I know she's like the perfect example that is sort of used for progressive young millennials running for office. Uh, but we are seeing a movement in that direction. And I think in the next, you know, sort of four to six years, we're going to see sort of a transition of millennials certainly um, entering politics and then shaping sort of the political landscape for the issues that matter to them.
3: I, I want to um, come back to something you said about um. Uh, millennials being civically engaged at the the local level, because you also talk in the book about how they are global citizens. You you mentioned before they're more interconnected and see themselves as on this kind of broader global scale. So how does that square with with being involved at the the local level?
2: Yeah, so when I say local, I don't necessarily mean that they're voting at the local level, because in fact, um, they're following the trend of young people, uh, you know, for sort of all of our history, where they participate less than other generations, and where they do participate, it's more at, you know, in national politics than it is in state and, and local politics, but where they are getting involved is, is sort of in non-political activities or less political activities at the, at the local level, because one thing about millennials is that they're very distrusting of institutions in general, And they're particularly distrusting of political parties. Um, They don't believe that political parties, the way they are constituted now and and how they operate with such partisanship and gridlock, that they get anything done. And and they're right to believe that because in their lifetimes, really, it's been the height of gridlock at the national level where nothing gets accomplished. Um, So they're much more likely to identify as independents than they are to identify with either political party. Now, millennials are more liberal. But that doesn't mean that they are, you know, registering as Democrats. They're much more likely to be independent. And I think what that does, not only that independence, but their lack of affiliation to political party leads them to sort of non-political civic activities. And some of those civic activities, we do see a movement sort of at the local level to, um, uh, you know, to push uh, issues, to, to rally, to, to hold uh, protest, to do things like that um, surrounding the issues that matter to them the most.
3: We've talked before on this podcast about the the separation of uh, democracy from classical liberalism. Uh, It it, it seems based on what you're saying that that's only going that that separation is only going to to grow larger as as millennials kind of take on more political power, given that they dis, distrust these institutions. Um, do you see that that kind of contributing to the, the separation of of liberalism and democracy?
2: Yeah, it could be. I think it still remains to be seen what millennials do when they actually um, become you know a critical mass in in political institutions. I think millennials have this conflict where they don't. Trust institutions, they don't believe institutions get anything done, but at the same time, um, they, they do realize that in order to change the system, they have to be within the system. And so it's the struggle between actually you know, sort of playing by the rules of the system in order to change it or saying, you know, we're not going to be part of the system and we're going to try to change it from the outside. And I think that's still an open question, how that's going to, to shape out um, in the future. Uh, And so depending on how that shapes uh, in the future, whether they do sort of enter the the institutionalized system and change it from within, what that looks like. What do our political parties look like if millennials are in charge and are actually setting the agenda for, for both parties or maybe one over the other? Um, how does that change the evolution of sort of how we view democracy with with sort of a, a, a small D um, in the future? And I think that's still an open question, depending on on what role and what influence uh, millennials have and, and how they choose to use that influence.
3: Yeah. Um, so we can kind of. Of look at Barack Obama and, and Bernie Sanders as two um, politicians that did well among this group. What do you think it was about them that, that really resonated so well with millennials?
2: Yeah, they really spoke to the issues that, that, that millennials care about much more so than other politicians. I would sort of put Beto O'Rourke in that category right now um, as somebody who's trying to sort of emulate uh, what Barack Obama did and, and what Bernie Sanders has done in terms of reaching out Um, To young people. In fact, I spoke to a reporter from the Dallas Morning News yesterday because um, Beto O'Rourke announced this tour of all universities or almost all universities in Texas where he's going to make, you know, tour stops and, and, and really focus on young people and college students to try and really get out. Uh, the vote among that segment of the population, because he sees that as the way to to beating Ted Cruz. Um, But I think these politicians, these three politicians, uh, you know, have really spoken to the issues that millennials care about, have particularly Obama really addressed millennials in the mediums that they care about. Um, You know, I talk in the book about or we talk in the book about, um, you know, Obama using a selfie stick to announce provisions of Obamacare. Um, And and so he really, even though he is not a millennial, he really sort of became the millennial president in the way he spoke to millennials about the issues that they care about and through the medium that they care about.
3: What about Donald Trump? How does he
2: play among millennials? Not too well. He's not very popular uh, among millennials. Um, I think the last poll that I saw recently, he had, you know, uh, in the upper 20s approval rating among millennials. Um, That's not to say that there isn't a segment of of millennials that probably uh, certainly um, support him and and believe in the in the policies that he's pushing forward. But overwhelmingly, about two thirds of millennials are are not supportive of Donald Trump, uh, not supportive of his policies for for all the reasons that I discussed in terms of the millennial identity. Right. Uh, All his policies related to immigration and diversity. Um, and he's what he's trying to do in those arenas sort of go counter to the experiences and the preferences of, of most millennials. And so he he certainly does not connect with the majority of millennials.
3: Is there anything to suggest that um, millennials will become more conservative as they get
2: older? So that's a really good question. I think one of the one of the key points that we try to make in the book is that millennials aren't monolithic, and that they're not across the board liberal, right? So we break down along a, a, a number of, of uh, policies and show that, um, you know, certainly on a number of policies, millennials are more liberal than older generations. Um, but on others, they look a lot like older generations. So, for example, abortion, we were surprised to find that millennials look a lot like Gen Xers, they look a lot like baby boomers. Um, and even when you break it down by race and ethnicity, Uh, Those numbers look more like the race and ethnic cohorts, the generational cohorts behind them, um, uh, rather than being unique uh, in, in opinions about abortion. Uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, economics in general, millennials take a very middle of the road approach. They're not totally in favor of government intervention in all aspects of the economy, as one might believe if you listen to people talk about how liberal millennials are. Uh, they're certainly very liberal when it comes to issues related to health care. They believe the government should play a large role in providing health care. They believe that healthcare care should be a right rather than a privilege. They also believe that the government should be involved in providing free education or supporting um, higher education much more than they do. And they certainly believe that the government should forgive student loan debt. Um, And then this has a lot to do with how, uh, you know, when they came of age during the recession. um, Millennials carried the largest percentage of um, or proportion of student loan debt compared to other generations. And so a lot of their attitudes are formed by their identity and by their experiences. But it doesn't mean that they are sort of liberal across the board on on all issues. That's certainly not the case. So it remains to be seen as they get older, uh, whether they maintain sort of their liberalism um, on certain policy issues or whether they become more conservative, as the conventional wisdom is that as you get older, you get more conservative. The early data on that is actually that that's not the case. Um, Pew has been tracking millennials uh, for a number of years, and their data has shown that older millennials are actually staying more liberal compared to other generations. So we'll see if that trend continues um, or not, or if they actually become more conservative conservative like other generations have in the past.
3: Stella, do you see that anything has shifted in in terms of young people uh, wanting to to run for office. I know we've seen the the run for something movement and and maybe several other other
2: groups like it out there that that have emerged since twenty sixteen. We've seen a really strong movement a young, of, among millennials to to enter the political arena in numbers that we have not seen in the past, um, and certainly to the point where we're talking about a wave, right of uh, women and minorities, millennials, uh, running for office, and and so is that all attributable to sort of Donald Trump and and, and his movement, his populist movement? Um, I don't know. I think it's too early to tell. But I think certainly, and it's too early to tell whether twenty eighteen will be an outlier or whether it'll be a part of a larger trend of younger people running for office. But that's certainly occurring this year, and and sort of sort of bucks all the all the. Uh, arguments that have been made in 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 books prior that that talk about millennials really being against running for office. So we'll see how that develops.
3: Yeah, and so I've you know read and heard and even talked with my own friends about there's kind of an element maybe of disdain for for baby boomers and and older generations thinking that oh you, know, you guys screwed everything up for us. I realize some of that probably happens all the time among generations, right? right. But um, How do millennials relate to, to baby boomers and Gen X and, and older generations?
2: Yeah, I don't think we asked any specific questions about whether they felt, you know, whether Gen X or baby boomers, uh, you know, represented their interests. But the general sense that we got from both uh, from our surveys and our focus groups is that millennials generally feel that those in government don't represent their interests and don't care about their interests and don't care about them, that they that politicians don't really reach out to them. Um, they don't really want to take in the issues that they um, are interested in and how to address these issues. And so they feel, I think, just very disillusioned with, with those in government, which naturally means older people because those are who have uh, generally represented them you know, for their entire lives. Uh, so I think that has been a, a pretty consistent feeling. And I think that's what they saw in Bernie Sanders. We sort of make this ironic comparison in, in the book, uh, in the beginning of the book, where we talk about why young people would sort of gravitate to this 76-year-old Jewish white guy who doesn't even comb his hair. Like, what appeal would he have to young people? And the appeal is that he, sp- he was speaking directly to them and basically running a campaign campaign largely um, with their support and, and talking about the issues that they really cared about. And that's something that they have not seen in a lot of politicians that are Gen Xers and baby boomers and even those uh, in the silent generation that just do not represent what they believe in.
3: What do you know, uh, boomers and, and Gen Xers need to know about how to, to, to work best with millennials?
2: Yeah. So this is kind of a chicken and egg question, right? I think a lot of um, older generations and those in government don't reach out to millennials because they don't see them as an electoral threat, right? Uh, So if millennials actually got out to vote at higher rates and voted at the rates at their potential, right? They're the largest generation in American history right now. If they voted at those numbers, then those politicians would have to listen to them. But then it's the other way around, right? Right. So how do politicians engage these millennials to vote? Um, And I think it comes back to a couple of things that we discussed earlier in our conversation, which was about meeting millennials halfway. Right. First of all, you, you know, politicians cannot treat millennials as being apathetic toward politics because they certainly are not. Um, They have a lot to say and a lot to offer, but you have to meet them in their arena and in their environment and what they're comfortable doing and not just say millennials don't vote. Therefore, they're not an important constituency and I don't care to reach out. So until there's a change in that attitude among politicians um, and whether that occurs or not, I'm skeptical. Right. Because I think ultimately these politicians will not change until millennials sort of force themselves to be listened to. And, and I don't know if that happens without them actually going to the ballot box and, um, you know, making their voices heard in that way. But, but these are the things that have to take place in order for, I think, millennials and, and, and those that are empowered to sort of um, work together uh, for the issues that millennials care about.
3: And there's also a, a financial piece to this, too, right? I mean, so, you know, millennials, as you talked about, were impacted by the, the Great Recession and are, you know, maybe are seeing lower incomes some large percentage of millennials are on track to be worse off economically than their their parents were so that all plays into to to politics as well right so if millennials can't can't donate or you know aren't getting politicians attention that way that you could be you know perhaps more reason to not take them seriously or listen to their concerns
2: oh absolutely sort of their economic power speaks to political power just like it always has in our country and um, their inability or their obstacles toward that because of the fact that they're underemployed or unemployed or have tremendous um, debt that doesn't allow them to sort of be the economic powerhouses that that they could be in order to to sort of force politicians to pay attention to them. Um, I think that's another, obviously another obstacle in, in the structure of our politics makes that more difficult that, you know, those with those who are older and have greater means are obviously going to influence politics more. But we've always had, I think, that issue in our country. I think it, it, it's particularly bigger for millennials because of the economic hardships that they've had and, and what their potential will be moving forward because of their um, sort of lower earning potential due to the Great Recession. It remains to be seen how sort of economically influential they'll be able to be in the future. And, and that'll speak to the, to the power that they will be able to garner in terms of influence in politics as well.
3: So it, it seems in all of this that, that 9-11 is something of an outlier um, in, in terms of the, thinking about the event versus you know, millennial attitudes on, on immigration and, and other policies. Can you talk um, a little more about how that fits into this picture?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so I think it's a bit counterintuitive how 9-11 has affected millennials. I think the the intuitive thought about 9-11 would be that they saw this threat on our country um, uh, and attack on our country that has just sort of made them um, be more isolationist or more protectionist uh, from the outside world. And it's actually the opposite. Uh, millennials have seen, basically have grown up their entire lives watching the U.S. be involved in wars in uh, Afghanistan and the Middle East. Uh, and I think that has had uh, uh, an effect of wanting uh, policies that uh, are more diplomatic than military in, in in sort of form. They are much more likely to favor diplomatic action Uh, They are much more likely to want the United States to sort of get out of the Middle East um, they, uh, and this goes to, to some of the things that I talked about before in terms of the interconnectedness, right? They, um, they have traveled more than other generations. They have connected with the rest of the world much more so than other generations, uh, have been able to do. And they view themselves. We, we use this term in the book called cosmopolitanism, which is this idea that you see the self, you see yourself as a citizen of the world, much more so than perhaps, uh, even a citizen of your own country or, or things like that. And millennials are much more likely to say that they view themselves as citizens of the world um, more than other generations. And I think that informs their, their foreign policy uh, attitudes in terms of wanting to work with other countries, wanting to work with other groups around the world, um, uh, other ethnicities, uh, you know, and, and, and actually formulate diplomatic solutions to some of these conflicts rather than than, um, than have military solutions. And so I think 9-11 has sort of had a counterintuitive effect on millennials that, uh, you know, otherwise those looking from the outside in would think would, would have had this hardened, you know, we, we, it's us against the world type of attitude, and that's not actually the case.
3: This episode will likely come out right around the uh, midterms. Um, I I know you don't have a a crystal ball down there in in College Park, but um, what do you think we're, we're likely to see in terms of millennial voter turnout this November?
2: I suspect that millennials will turn out to vote at higher rates than they previously have in midterm elections. How high that'll be is absolutely open to debate and discussion um, uh, whether sort of the this momentum that there seems to be or uh, you know uh, pent up uh, sort of motivation to vote whether that actually translates into actual votes is, is what you know I think is is still the open question. But if I if I was looking into the crystal ball, I would say that we will see an increase in millennial uh, voter turnout for this midterm election compared to. 2014 and
3: um, uh, 2012. Okay, well, we'll see how that that uh, prediction uh, turns (laughs) out once this episode comes out. Um, So we're going to to close now with our four uh, mood of the nation poll questions. So um, thinking specifically about American politics, what makes you angry?
2: Oh, the complete tribalism that politics has become, uh, where it's more important to to defend one one's political team than it is to get anything accomplished. Uh,
3: what makes you proud?
2: <sighs> that we have the ability and the potential to change things for the better, and that we live in a in a democracy that allows us to do that. What makes you worry? Oh, lots of things. What makes me worry um, the most that that we will revert, that we will not sort of make the progress that I hope we make in terms of, um, you know, changing the way we uh, accept our multicultural society and accept people in this society um, as equal. uh, And that I fear I wish that would take a shorter amount of time for that to happen, but I fear it may be sort of a long drawn out uh, process. And then finally, what gives you hope? The next generation. I really believe in millennials. I have a millennial and I have a post-millennial at home, two boys, and I have a lot of faith in the fact that they will uh, turn turn our issues around and, and and make our country better. I really do. I have a lot of faith in them. Great. Well,
3: we will leave it there. Stella, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thank you, Jen. I've really had a good
2: time discussing the book and and millennials overall.
0: Okay. Well, as we expected, lots to chew on there. And uh, let's, you know, let's get at it. Um, Michael, I thought her. Their, her use of, the, of this distinction between engaged citizenship and a kind of duty-based citizenship was really interesting. Um, you know, I, I have some question as to whether or not it's quite as distinctive as, you know, sometimes this is presented. I mean— Well, maybe
1: because you're old.
0: Yeah, well, true, but it's also the case that when you talk about something like, uh, you know, informing yourself, you know— separating that from voting is not necessarily a bright line. She also mentioned, you know, um, paying, uh, you know, donating money to a candidacy. I don't know that anybody would necessarily see that as a duty.
1: Right. Well, I think what I hear her distinguishing here is is to say that it's incorrect just because there's low voting behavior Mm -hmm. among this group of people that they're not engaged, that they're not serious about their citizenship, that they're not serious about social change, they're not serious about making a difference. But they're a cynical group. Mm -hmm. Uh, They grew up in a time where there is very low confidence in political institutions, uh, very little trust in political institutions. Uh so it's not really that surprising to me that they would think about how they can direct their energy and their interests in change mm-hmm. into something other than politics.
0: Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Or at with least
1: something that. other than politics as we understand it, where and and you know I appreciate that if you're not going to vote, then you're not going to get the candidates you want. Right. You're not You're not going to get the office holders you mm-hmm. want. You're not going to get a lot of the change and you're not that you want. So voting is the gold standard mm-hmm. of political mm-hmm. participation. But if you're growing up in an age in which you're really cynical about politics, in which there's such low trust in political institutions, then maybe you start to think that eh, voting's not really going to make that much of a difference anyway. I'm going to direct my energy otherwise.
0: Yeah. I, I, I totally understand it, but I also think that it's it's a— Um, it's a foolish choice to make. And it, and it's, you know, look, you know, the game is winning elections. And if you want to have your views represented, that's what you have to do. And, you know, I mean, if you wanna play baseball, but you don't wanna hit home runs, you're gonna lose, you know, and it doesn't matter how good you are at everything else. And in the same way, if you believe in these issues, then you know you can choose to do it elsewhere but it's not going to achieve your ends and and i just i just feel like you know this is just a matter of just raw self-interest and and it should be clear to these people if they're in their 20s and 30s that their raw self-interest is not reflected in the policy choices that are made in DC right now and if they want that to change there's only one way for that to happen and that's for them to vote
1: and i think i think the argument that stella is making about this about this generation is that often they think you know i could just be a lot more effective by boycotting companies that are that are adhering to a political agenda that I'm opposed to, I, and I'm going to support the companies yeah. too. And actually, I can make change. I can see change. I can feel what's going on. I can be social about this. Mm-hmm. I can connect with other people doing it. Voting, I'm just going to get another politician. I'm cynical about. Right. Right. And, and 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 one thing I kind of take out of it is that you know I get I get the arguments about how if you don't vote. Nothing's going to really ever change, mm-hmm. and so it's important that you get out and vote. But from their perspective, or as Stella presents mm-hmm. it, anyway, uh, using this distinction which has had some, uh, some traction in, in social science over the years, uh, they come at it from a completely different perspective. And, and the, the kind of engagement that they have just doesn't really include what we think of as traditional political
0: activity. Right, and our, I- if they were to direct this attention to – um, electoral politics—they—they they could quite readily change American society. Oh, without a doubt. For <laughs> one thing, they are so diverse, right? And they can use the social media, and they're so big, right? Yeah. They're, they're just such a big number. So, and—and and I also wanted to just quickly um, tag on to something you said. I—I I, I really want to make it clear that I think this is all our fault, our generation's fault. We educated these students to think to. S- to understand that being a good citizen didn't require you to be politically active, that there were all these other ways, and they pushed you into service learning. And politics was messy and distasteful, so just forget it. You don't need it. And so now we're seeing these chickens coming home and roosting, and, and I don't want to say that they're, that they're to blame for this. And I think you're absolutely right about how they uh, manifest all, these, all this you know, social awareness But none of that changes the reality of their own self-interest. And if you want to change the world, you cannot not vote.
1: Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have been chasing them off your lawn all those
2: years, too. (laughs)
0: You know, I don't know that I have ever once chased a young person off my lawn. I don't know that it's ever come up. Now, mind you, if anybody does, I probably will, but it hasn't come up.
1: Well, this, uh, you know, so this election is going to be really interesting, I think, in, in for lots of reasons. We've talked about many of them, but, you know, there's there's a lot, as you, as you started our whole discussion today, there's been a lot put on the backs of younger people to turn out and vote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Somehow, you know, somehow bring about massive change through their voting turnout. I, I am just really skeptical we're going to see it. If we'll we see. did, it's going to shake up politics. Yeah, it really will. I guess we we kind of conclude today that uh, from uh, the way the way Stella looks at looks at the millennial generation, they're doing they're doing the work of democracy. Yes, in ways yes. that they understand it. Yes, they're not necessarily doing it in the way that we would understand it.
0: or that. Um best serves their own self-interest. That yeah. would be my argument. Yeah. yeah. Okay,
1: very good. This has been, uh, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. This has been uh, Democracy Works. Thank Thanks you. for
0: listening.